Hey, Christ Community Brookside Campus, John Brewer here, and if you don't know me, I serve as our worship pastor. During our corporate worship on Sunday, we featured a poem written by Michelle Campbell that was so in line with the message that we wanted you to hear it before you heard the sermon. Hope you were as moved by this piece as much as we were. Good morning, everyone. My name is Michelle Campbell, and I'm yet again excited to stand before you. Uh, the piece that I'm going to do for you really focuses on uh, one of the scriptures that you'll talk about later on in the lesson. It's from Matthew 20, 17 through 28. And it really boils down to two points. It's either our selfish ambition or Christ's intention. Yes, we want to be great. We want to be first. We want to be known. We want to be recognized. But when you really realize what Christ calls us to recognize is the last should be first and the first should be last. So this piece kind of puts me on the hot seat and shows you what my mindset is and I'm doing different events and I want the spotlight here on me. I want to look good. I don't want to mess up. I don't want to be wrong. But when I recognize who Christ is in my life, it helps me put everything in perspective and I'm able to move forward in a kingdom mindset like he intended us to. So. Time and time again, I made a name for myself. And not necessarily one that I wanted to be called by because my actions had set the stage for performances that I was beyond ashamed of, but it was no turning back. I call myself climbing this ladder. You know, the kind that's fashioned out the self-glory and fortified by pride. It's funny, I had long since lost interest in what it was made of. I was more fascinated by what was at the top. Spotlight. Recognition. Fame of some sort. A mission that seemed impossible to abort because... I was in too deep. It never occurred to me how the things that we aspire after can transform themselves into our secret identities if we aren't careful, especially in ministry because ministry lives matter, right? The struggle becomes putting the ministry first and allowing everything else to come after, but even though God was the author, I was the co-author of that chapter at least once if not twice in my life. I did own some of the rights to this greatness I possessed. I mean, really. How long are you willing to pause with the applause of my longing to be accepted to gratify my ego? A question that most times took too long for an acceptable answer to surge, so I sold where I wanted to with no expectations of reaping the benefits of my selfish antics. I was simply planning the foundation for my future. In the meantime, I was on the road to my own Damascus asking questions that suggested I knew the answer to something I didn't. If I had to admit it, I was the murderer who had been acquitted for the persecution of my righteousness on a journey that left me hell-bent to be converted to myself because, if nothing else, that's why my entourage of conceit, vanity, and stubbornness slung our ways high above the heavens because we deserve to be first. After all, we knew best. And as for the rest of you, your compliments only, only pacified my ego. I had a thirst that words alone couldn't quench, and surely I could convince you that everything I did made sense, and in the event that you chose to disagree with me, you would be cast into the sea of brimstone with the rest of the unmentionables. That was my mindset until I was able to bear witness to the king of king cloth and servants entire retire my need to depend on me. He placed the feast of servanthood before my table of greed and in humility with the silence of his answers, he glorified the background of his father's will. Will you listen? Will you hear things that don't make sense to you and try them by the spirit who sent them? Will you understand that everything is not always as it seems? Will you take into consideration that in our greatness, we are the forerunners of his submission 
And with respects to role reversal, everything is not always about me. Thanks, Michelle. Our scripture reading is from Matthew 20, verses 17 through 24, and this is found on page 825 in the Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take the one that you'll have in your hand as a gift from us, and if you know somebody who needs a Bible, take that one and give it to them. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left hand, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mickey, for reading God's word for us and for that beautiful poem as well about your community group. My name is Paul Brandis, and I have the privilege to serve here at the Brookside campus of Christ Community as an associate pastor, and I want to add my welcome to Mickey's, whether you're here for the first time, welcome, or whether you've been here from the very beginning. We're glad that you took time out of your week to uh, celebrate Sunday with us. I did want to let you know that we have one more announcement that will be coming up in the course of the service. Uh, Pastor Bill will be coming uh, after uh, communion and after the final song uh, during the benediction moment to share some exciting news uh, from across all campuses at Christ Community. And so we'd ask for you to, to maybe be ready for that um, so you don't scoot out during communion. We have some, some extra uh, special announcements uh, coming still from Bill. So uh, as we open God's word, as we say every week, we need his help to understand it. We're, we're powerless to do so on our own, and so would you bow your heads with me as we ask the Spirit to move in this place today. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, and thank you that we have it and that you have communicated with us. I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would move in this place so that we can understand it, and that as I speak, as we open Matthew chapter 20, I pray I would become less, and you and your name and your kingdom would be made great. pray all these things in your name. Amen. When I was growing up, uh, one of the favorite books that I had in my collection was the Guinness Book of World Records. Maybe we're all familiar with this. Guinness uh, releases a book of world records every year. But see, I didn't just have any year of the Guinness World Records book. No, I had year 2000. This was the millennium edition, right? I mean, it's silver. It's decked out. This was, Guinness really went above and beyond for the millennium edition. And I would spend hours going through the Guinness Book of World Records. Maybe you've glanced at one before, and I'm willing to bet you are at least a little bit interested and fascinated at what's in these pages. Which really, if you, you stop and think about it, is kind of weird that we're intrigued by this book because why should we care who has the world's longest fingernails? 
And then who made the world's biggest hamburger? Right? I would get the fingernails off the screen quick. Or, or why should we care who the world's greatest foot archer is? I don't know. You know, it's, it's almost as if these people, they, they watched the Olympics, and they said, well, I can't do any of that, but I have a really big mouth. Maybe I'm best in the world at that. Or I'm not the world's fastest hurdler, but if you put flippers on me, I am winning that race. That's a world record. World's fastest hurdler wearing flippers. I don't know. I don't know. But see, the thing is, I'm not making fun of these people, right? Because when I was looking through that book when I was a kid, I was trying to search for a record I could break. I mean, right? Wouldn't we all, if we're really honest, want to own a Guinness Book of World Records record, be the best in the world at something? I don't think I'm alone on that this morning. And, and I, think, I think the reason why we're intrigued and fascinated and why we search those pages trying to find a record we could break is I think at some level, we all want to be great. We, we all want to be the best. We, we all want to be first. And maybe you don't view yourself as someone who's super ambitious, who, who seeks after first place with great abandon, but I want you to think about the totality of your life for a moment, if, if that's you. If you, you're like, I don't know if I really seek greatness. Think about everything you have going on in your life. Your, your friends, your family, your job, your hobbies, in all of that, in all of the totality of your life, isn't there something that you want to be great at? Isn't there anything in the totality of your life that you'd want to be the best at or you'd want to be great? I certainly hope so. And if that's true, then, then what it means is that Jesus' words for us this morning in Matthew 20 are for everyone. They're for everyone. Because where does Jesus say greatness can be found? The absolute last place we'd expect it. And we've come to see this from Jesus, right? I mean, over and over again in Matthew's gospel, he said, in my kingdom, things are different. Things are unexpected. Things are upside down. So how about it? Where does Jesus say true greatness can be found? Let's dive in and find out. We're in Matthew 20. We're talking about following King Jesus. That's the title of this mini-series that we've been in. And and in this, in this mini-series, what we've seen is that this king, King Jesus, he gives his followers a different set of marching orders. He gives his followers a different sort of set of marching orders because Jesus himself is a very different sort of king. He proves this all over the place. I mean, just look at the beginning of our passage to verse 18 where he says this to his disciples. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. I mean, what kind of king do you know that foretells his own death and destruction? What kind of king looks out to his future and says, Yeah, I'm going to be murdered? And this isn't the first time that Jesus has talked about this with his disciples either. In Matthew's narrative, this is actually the third time that Jesus has gathered his closest followers around him and has talked to them about this being his future. 
I mean, it's almost like when you are in class or when you are in class, if you're a student, and the teacher repeats something more than one time, or maybe they're about to write something on the board and they kind of look over their shoulder and they go, if I were you, I'd write this down. I mean, that, that's going to be on the test, right? <laughs> it's the same idea. Jesus keeps bringing this up and talking about it with his disciples because it's important. It's the major moment in the story and he doesn't want them to miss it. But they do miss it. Badly. You see what happens next, right after Jesus says these words in verses 18 and 19, is that two of the disciples, James and John, come to him with their mom, no less, and they come to him with a request. And actually their mom is the one to talk, and she kneels at Jesus' feet and she says, this is the end of verse 21, she says, say, Jesus, that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. When everything's said and done, Jesus, can my sons be your number one and your number two? Can my sons be your vice president and your secretary of state? And James and John are are grown men, so I've always kind of read this passage with a bit of a ridiculous scene in my head, almost like James and John's mom is like the ultimate helicopter mom, right? Like just cannot stop hovering even though they're well out of the household but she is just there constantly. I mean, you can picture it with me, right? I mean, she's coming to Jesus. She's kind of barging through everybody to get to him and James and John are kind of like sheepishly behind her, like embarrassed and bashful that their mommy is asking Jesus this question for them. And, and that may be what's going on here, but it's really interesting to note that, that Matthew includes this detail about uh, their mother kneeling at Jesus' feet. And that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, because that is an explicit sign of worship. That's the ultimate show of humility. I mean, how many people have you kneeled down before in your life? So maybe, uh, maybe her tone is more like this. Maybe it's, Jesus, you are king. And me and my family, we're all in. We want to be part of what you're doing, and, and my sons are ready to lead with you. I mean, that's a little bit different. And the thing of it was, James and John were a great choice for leaders. I mean, back in Matthew 4, when they were first called to follow Jesus, They were with their father running a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. Everything we know about James and John says that they were sharp, capable entrepreneurs. A good choice, probably, to be Jesus' right and left-hand men. But even if that is how their mother is framing the request, even if it's genuine and heartfelt, and even if James and John were great leaders, they're still missing the point. I mean, think about what Jesus has just said right before this scene unfolds. Think about what he's told them of his future. He said, guys, we're going to Jerusalem so I can be murdered. I think you're jumping ahead just a little bit. And in fact, the next time in the Gospel of Matthew that we hear talk of Jesus' right and left is when he's hanging on the cross between two thieves, one who is on his right and one who is on his left. The cross is in full focus for Jesus at this point. It's what's next for him. It's the cup that he is about to drink. 
And keep that in mind as we read Jesus' response to James and John. In verses 22 and 23, he answers him this way. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. James and John still don't understand that the way of Jesus is the way of death. That the way of Jesus is the way of suffering, the way of sacrifice. Yeah, we can drink that cup, Jesus, but they have no idea. And don't miss that Jesus knows that they will drink that cup. You will drink that cup. He says, and he knows James. James will be the first of the 12 who are murdered for following him. And he knows, he knows that John will be exiled, all for following after him. He knows they'll eventually drink the cup, but right now they're missing it. They're missing it. And as it turns out, the rest of the disciples are missing it too, right? This is verse 24, where it says that when the the rest of the 10 heard it, they were indignant at them. They were mad. They were, they were peeved. They were ticked off. And they weren't mad or ticked off because they had this understanding of Jesus' teaching. It, it wasn't as if they were saying, haven't you been listening, James and John? Don't you get it? He's going to die. What does it matter who sits at his right or left? That's, that's not what's happening here. They're mad because they didn't think of it first. It wasn't their humility That made them mad at James and John. It was their jealousy. Boy, that was a great idea. I mean, just two chapters ago, in Matthew 18, the beginning, all 12 of them were caught in this argument about who among them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You might remember I I also uh, preached that message, and and, and I really couldn't shake the feeling this week as I was preparing that maybe maybe God's trying to tell me something. (laughs) Like, Like, you know how the disciples kept missing Jesus' teaching about who's great in the kingdom? Yeah, you're missing that too. (laughs) So that's where I'm at. (laughs) How about you? Maybe you're with me this morning. And, And that's our first observation. I don't think I'm alone because I really believe that everyone is looking for greatness. Everyone is looking for greatness. And I want to make sure you hear me say this morning that the quest for greatness is not inherently a bad thing. Not at all, right? Because if you think about it, we're hardwired for greatness because we are made in the image of a great God. Who is greater than our God? No one. Nothing. And we're built in His image. So so greatness, the, the, the pursuit of greatness is baked into us. So it's not that seeking after greatness is the problem. That's not it. The problem is that the search for greatness, at least for me, is almost always entirely self-centered. It's almost entirely self-centered. Do I want to be great for the sake of others? Or is it really, if I'm honest, is it really just about seeing my name in lights? Power isn't the problem in and of itself. Use of power for selfish gain is the problem. Ambition isn't the problem. Selfish ambition is the problem. In fact, later in the New Testament, in the book of James, 
James will actually say that selfish ambition is demonic. It's vile and it breeds death and destruction, he says. Selfish ambition, use of power for selfish gain, those are the problems. And I'm convinced that those struggles, those shortcomings, the use of power for something that is not altruistic, the, the, the seeking after of more and more greatness while we leave others behind in our wake, I'm convinced that those sins hide in the deep, dark corners of our heart. They are hard to get at. I mean, I think with the pull of something like sex or money or even comfort and ease, we kind of notice the pitfalls of those. It's like, okay, those are kind of out in front of me. I don't know how well I'm going to refuse the pull towards those things, but at least I see them. But if I'm honest, the desire to be great at the expense of all others and the desire to be great and have my name in lights, that's a, that hides. That's not out front. That's way more subtle. And consequently, I think it's, it's way more dangerous, this search for power and greatness. I mean, this is exactly what Michelle's talking about this morning, right? I was nailed by her spoken word this morning, talking about climbing the ladder of success with paying no mind for what that ladder was made out of. I mean, that's me. You know, I was preparing this week, and I was reminded of Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame introduction speech. You know, Michael Jordan's widely considered to be one of the greatest basketball players of all time. I mean, there were commercials that were made about being like Mike. You may remember those, right? He was the guy that you, you looked up to, and you want, he had everything that the world says is great. And, and what we see in his Hall of Fame introduction speech is that it's still not enough. Because in his speech, he is nothing but petty. Nothing but petty. It's, it's so sad. He, he actually brings the guy who, who got chosen to be on the high school varsity basketball team over him. He brings him to the ceremony so that he can set the guy right there and say, hey, look at me. I'm here and you're there. I mean, that's selfish ambition at its worst. That is a journey to greatness that has gone way off the rails. And if we're not careful, that could be us too. And maybe not to the same degree. I'm, I'm certainly not going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame of anything. But if I'm honest, I notice those Jordan-like tendencies in my own heart. I wish I had Jordan-like tendencies on the court, <laughs> but I don't. And it's way more that I'm like Jordan when it comes to the search for greatness or what power does to me. And kids and students, you see this, right? I mean, you can lord your power and greatness over your younger siblings or on the playground or in the cafeteria. And adults, we know that it only gets harder with age, the more influence and visibility you're given. So before we go any farther, before we see where Jesus says true greatness lies, I have to ask the question that's just sitting there. If all of us are searching for greatness, where are you searching for greatness? Where are you looking for it? Every one of us is. And it's not all bad, right? But we have to be aware of the potential pitfalls. For many of you, you're seeking greatness in your family. You want it to be the best. Or at the office, and you just keep climbing that corporate ladder. Or at school, you want to be part of the popular squad what will you do to get there? 
Oh, and pastors are the worst at this. Because, see, we can spiritualize the heck out of this thing. I'm going to be honest this morning, just open up a little window into my soul for you, okay? And this is so deeply connected to our passage. You'll notice at the very end of verse 23 that Jesus says, regarding the spots on his right and his left, his right hand and left hand, he says, hey, those are already prepared by the Father. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, and I actually had this thought, I'm not making it up, I promise you, uh, it doesn't make me look good, so why would I make it up, right? So I have the thought, oh, there are two spots next to Jesus, Hmm, I guess we can rule James and John out, but I, I mean, Adam could be me, who knows? I mean, Jesus, I mean, right? I mean, Jesus, you're saying there's a chance? I did. I had that thought, right? I, I mean, is there any wonder why Jesus, why God had me preach two messages on this theme? <laughs> I mean, the next time you catch me giving the disciples a hard time for missing the point, will you just slap me? <laughs> I mean, Right? Somebody sent me this article this week, uh, which professions have the most psychopaths, the fewest? Sorry, CEOs. <laughs> but you'll be happy to know that uh, pastor is only eighth on the list. <laughs> <laughs> but what's so interesting, and this is the point of the article, is that the kinds of positions that psychopaths are drawn to, a psychopath is someone who suffers from extreme self-centeredness, someone who unabashedly abuses power. So then, of course, Psychopaths are drawn to positions of power, and the fewest among them are drawn to positions of service. And I have to say, there's nothing wrong with any of these positions on the far left. Hopefully, we've already covered that today, right? Jesus isn't saying that, that a position of power or influence is somehow inherently wrong. You know, CEOs, you know, you shouldn't quit your jobs because of this. Not at all, right? That's not Jesus' point. The point is more this. How are you trying to get to those positions? And how do you act when you do get there? When you consider your greatness, are people being left in your wake as you drive that speedboat, the speedboat of greatness? Or are people flourishing as a result of the power and influence and greatness that you already have? Are people flourishing? I think this cartoon summarizes it well. The mom says to her son, says, if you do not study, you will end up like him. And, and I read that and I think, well, well, that might be true, maybe, but that's definitely a very extremely self-centered understanding of greatness. Or how about the other parent? She says, if you study well, you will be able to make a better world for him. So let me ask the question again, where are you seeking greatness and who is flourishing as a result? So for example, if you're already the popular kid at school, are you helping the unpopular kids flourish? If you're the CEO, how are your employees doing? What about your friendships or your neighbors? And on your, your pursuit of greatness, on that journey, where do you sense selfish ambition getting in the way? Because see, what comes next in this passage is really fascinating. As we'd expect, because the disciples have missed it, there's a rebuke coming from Jesus. But it's, it's not necessarily the, the content that we'd expect. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for seeking greatness. He just rebukes them for seeking it in the wrong way. Greatness, Jesus says, is found in last place. Greatness 
is found in last place. And I know that that doesn't, at first glance, make sense. We all watched the Olympics. We all saw the final medal counts. They put up the first four or five, six nations that had the most medals. They did not show the other end of the scale. They didn't show the nations that didn't win any medals or won one medal or two medals. This is different. This is different. Greatness is found in last place. And even though it doesn't make sense, it's exactly what Jesus says. In our passage, verses 25 through 27, Jesus called the disciples to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Who is great? In Jesus' kingdom, servants. Who's first? Who's winning? Slaves. And this is still, I think, a shocking point, a shocking teaching in today's society. I mean, think of the cartoon that I just showed a minute ago. It's so easy for us to still snub our noses down at positions of service. But when Jesus was living, when Jesus was teaching, it's likely that there were actual slaves who were in the crowd that so often gathered to hear Jesus. This is a paradigm-shifting, an earth-shattering concept. The last shall be first. Who's great? Servants. Who's winning? Slaves. Jesus knows, Jesus knows that this turns everything upside down on its head. And there isn't any way around it because Jesus says it so clearly. He says, choose to be last. Choose to be last. Everyone else, Jesus says, uses power for themselves, for their own gain. Everyone else looks for people to serve them. It shall not be so among you. Not among my people. Not in my kingdom. Not in my church. It shall not be so among you. So let me ask you, what does last place look like for you? And I've really struggled with this question this week, right? I've already shared, this is an ongoing struggle for me. I do want to be great. I do want to get first place. No, no, that's not quite right. I really, really, really want to get first place. I don't even think competitive begins to describe my personality. I think I've shared before uh, the, the Strengths Finders assessment. Um, I've taken this, and, and my top strength is woo, winning others over. And that basically means that you just cannot stand it when somebody doesn't like you. So that's something I'm working through as well. Um, but do you know what else is in my top five that's relevant to, to today's message? Uh, competition. Competition is in my top five strengths. Apparently, I'm really good at wanting to win. Notice I said I'm good at wanting to win, not necessarily winning. And, and Jesus says so clearly, we have to choose to be last. Awesome. Uh, let, me, let me read just a couple sentences from my personalized strengths insight. This is what they give you when you, when you take this uh, assessment. This is related to me being good at competition. So it says this, it says, By nature, you are enthused about being declared the very best. 
Your authoritarian stance may put a few people on notice that you think you are clever. Sometimes their confidence begins to crumble. A second or third place finish can send you into a, wait for it, an emotional tailspin. <laughs> yeah, there it is. I'm, I'm your pastor. Hi. <laughs> now think about all that Jesus has said. Choose to be last. Greatness looks like a servant, like a slave. First place is actually last place. Humble yourself and choose to serve others, no matter what. Does any of that sound like it would come easily for a competitive jerk like me? No, it doesn't. And I share all of this with you to be transparent this morning because I want you to know I am just a fellow struggler with you on our way to the bottom, on our way to last place. So what does last place look like for you? I'm still trying to figure it out for me. You know, one thing I do know, though, is that Jesus isn't saying that we all have to take jobs in the service industry or that we should cast off leadership or that we should feel guilty when we get promoted. No, that's not his point because I really think, and I think Jesus thinks this too, that you can still lead in your company, in your family, and at school, you can still lead in high places of greatness and authority and power. You can still lead there and be a servant. Because no matter what, no matter what position you are, no matter where you're at on the org chart, you can always, always, always choose to serve others. You can always choose to serve others, no matter where you're at. In fact, I think we know that biblically, historically, experientially, the best leaders are those who put on the hat every morning of servant, right? I love Jim Collins' best-selling book, From Good to Great. And Jim Collins is a, is a writer and speaker. He specializes in the business world. As far as I know, he's not a Christian, yet his definition of a level five leader, which is the highest tier of leadership, it's exactly what Jesus would say. This is it. Level five leaders build enduring greatness through a paradoxical blend of extreme personal humility and intense professional will. You know, level five leaders are ambitious for sure, but the defining characteristic is that their ambition isn't for themselves. Their power is not for them. It's for something far greater. It's for something far greater, far beyond seeing their own name in lights. And what I find so interesting in his definition is that he says this leadership blend is paradoxical. It's not common. You wouldn't put these two things together. And it's paradoxical because apparently Jesus' way, as he said over and over again, is different. It's unexpected. It's surprising. It's upside down. So what Jesus says is don't stop seeking greatness. Don't stop seeking it, Jesus says. Just don't forget where true greatness is found, in service to others. That's the thrust of this passage. Whether it's people above you, below you, beside you, or around you, the question Jesus wants to ask all of us this morning is, who are we serving? Who are we serving? Do we go around looking for people who can serve us, who can meet our needs, or or are we constantly on the hunt for the next place to give ourselves away? Stated more simply, are, are you looking to serve or be served? And I bet that question stings a little bit since we're in church this morning because 
Some of you are only here to have your needs met. I know, I know that I treat church that way sometimes, but it's supposed to be different than that. Jesus makes it clear, before we worry about ourselves, we're supposed to ask, whose needs am I currently meeting? And I know the objections. Some of you this morning may be thinking, yeah, well, service just really isn't my personality. I'm not built to serve. I'm not gifted to serve. It's, it's just not for me. I think that would be my top objection as, I thought, as, as I've thought through this. And, and for those of us who think that way, then we have to be ready to admit that, well, then Jesus' kingdom just really isn't for us either. Because this is how it operates. These are the people who are first. We don't get an option to, to throw off this mantle of servanthood if we want Jesus and his kingdom. Or maybe you're thinking, yeah, I can serve, but only if I like it. It has to be something that I enjoy and choose to do. Could you ever imagine a slave uttering that statement? But slaves are first. Jesus says so. Here's the bottom line. We are going to seek greatness. We're already doing it. The only question is whether we are seeking that greatness according to our kingdom or according to Jesus's. And maybe you're thinking, you don't get it, Paul. I'm already in last place. What does last place look like for me? It looks like Tuesday. I'm not great at anything. Not the smartest, not the most successful, I'm not the most popular. If that's you this morning, then this passage, this teaching from Jesus should give you great comfort because he says that these are not the definitions of greatness anymore. He totally redefines it. He gives it a new economy. And in Jesus' economy, if you're in last place, then you're rich beyond your wildest dreams. And I know that doesn't fix everything. It doesn't. I know that. I get it. How could it? But hopefully you're comforted if you are in last place this morning. Because if you're in last place already and you're convinced you're there, then guess what? You're with Jesus. And that's our final observation this morning. Last place is with Jesus. Everyone's looking for greatness. Greatness, Jesus says, is found in last place. But friends, don't miss this. Church, don't miss this. Last place is where Jesus is. And if that's true, then why would we want to go anywhere else? Why, we, why would we deliver any other place, position, or station in life if Jesus is already in last place? And what's more here, we see that Jesus, he's not telling us to do something that he himself hasn't already done. No, Jesus says that we are to serve others, serve others, Jesus says, and then verse 28 of our passage, even as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, you should serve because I, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve. That's what I'm here for, and you as my followers have to do the same thing. And Jesus, when he serves, he's not made less Right, when he washes the disciples' feet, when he dies for our sins, that's, that doesn't diminish him. 
Of course not. In fact, in some mysterious way, the Bible teaches that Jesus is raised to the highest heights through his humble service. It's his descent to greatness. The New Testament book of Colossians chapter 1, the author Paul, he writes this about Jesus. He says, all of creation, all of creation, which for something that's so big as all of creation, sometimes we can just kind of like, like, oh sure, all of creation. All of creation, everything that we can see and touch, all of creation was created through and for Jesus Christ. All of creation, think about that, was created through and for Jesus Christ. And yet here we have that same person, that same Jesus who says, hey, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. God himself in the flesh, if, if anyone, if anyone could have demanded service, wouldn't it have been Jesus? If anyone would have had the right to say, hey, serve me, all creation was created through and for me, I, I, I could take some service, wouldn't it have been Jesus? But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I come not to be served, but to serve. It's incredible. And what's more, he, he says, I didn't just come to serve, but I came to give my life as a ransom for many. A ransom, ransom, the payment, the payment that is given to free a slave. You know, follow this, this beautiful mystery with me for a moment, right? You and I, we are slaves to our sin. And Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the ransom payment that we need to be freed. And why does he free us? He frees us so then, then we can willingly become servants and slaves again, but not to sin, slaves to righteousness, as Paul writes in Romans 6. Slaves in last place with Jesus right there. And it's in that place, it's in last place with Jesus as we willingly take on the mantle of servanthood, as we willingly say we will become slaves to Jesus, slaves to righteousness, it's in that place that we find true life. It is in that place that we find true freedom. Think about the paradox of finding freedom through being a slave to Jesus in last place. It's in that place that we find true greatness. And I know this isn't easy. It's not easy. And my biggest question throughout all of this, maybe it's yours too, is this. Okay, who will serve me? If I do this, if I do what Jesus is asking, then how will my needs be met? Who will take care of me? And that's the beautiful point of this passage, isn't it? Who's going to serve us? Jesus will. Jesus will meet our needs. And in fact, in his life, death, and resurrection, he has already met our greatest need. You and I, as we were slaves to sin, that is a debt. That is a debt that we couldn't even begin to pay. Right? Bill talked about that a few, few weeks ago with the unforgiving servant. I know that my debt to sin was beyond what I could ever comprehend getting out of by myself. But Jesus, he met my greatest need with his ransom payment. And as I trust in him, as you trust in him, as we trust in him, that activates that ransom payment and we are freed from our sins. And at that point, as we're freed from our sins, then we can choose to be last. We can choose last place. We can choose to serve others because we know that as we make that choice, it's going to put us right next to Jesus. 
He beat us there. He beat us to last place. Are we going to join him? I've been thinking about what we have to do in light of this, right? And, and not, not broadly, but specifically. Not later, but now. What are we going to do with what Jesus tells us about servanthood? You're pursuing greatness. I know you are. So am I. But only servants find true greatness. And in fact, if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to take him seriously, then here's your job title. Servant. Servant. That's it. That's who I am. I'm not a husband. I'm a servant. I'm not a dad. I'm a servant. I'm not a pastor. I'm a servant. I'm not a neighbor or a friend or a son or a churchgoer. I am a servant. And so we've made us all business cards. Seriously, that's what this is. It's a business card, and there should be some kind of at the end of each of your rows. I hope we didn't run out. If, if you didn't get one this morning, or kind of take them and pass them down. If you didn't get one, let, one go, uh, let me know, and I'll get you one. The idea is, is that you'll take this with you, right? This is a take-home piece, and not, not to slide in one of these blue bins on your way out, or not to for... <laughs> oh, I caught some of you, didn't I? <laughs> Okay, so, so not to do that, but to put somewhere. Somewhere you're going to see it. Maybe it goes uh, on your mirror in the morning. Maybe it goes at your desk at work. Students, maybe this goes in your locker or in your backpack. Maybe if you're a stay-at-home mom, it goes on your fridge. Or, or maybe it goes in your car. Wherever you are going to see it a lot and wherever your day is the hardest. Wherever you're going to be tempted to not remember that you are a servant, that I am a servant. And this isn't going to fix everything, but, but hopefully it's going to be a reminder, a reminder of who we are because of Jesus. Servants, we're the ones who willingly pursue last place. And now I want you to imagine with me a church that did that. A church where each member went away each week challenged and energized to truly serve those around them. Because serving here at church is important. Absolutely it is. But serving out there as the church scattered, I'd say that's even more important. Serving those around you in your life, that's where the rubber meets the road here. So who are you going to serve? Uh, would a church like that, that went from this place each week serving others, would, would that change neighborhoods? Would that change companies? Would that, would that change cities? Would that change the world? I think so. Is Christ's community that, that kind of church? I hope so. Who are you? If you're a follower of Jesus, the answer is simple. Servant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son Jesus to the lowest place where he humbled himself to death on a cross. And we know, Lord, that it is through trusting in that gospel message of life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that we can too be freed from our slavery to sin and be freed to choose last place with Jesus. Help us to do that, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. It's not easy, but we know it is right. We know it is what we should do. And so we would pray you would give us the strength to do so this week. It is in your name we pray. Amen.